0: Again, and welcome to another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin here with my co host who doesn't know what he's doing, uh, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, how are you? Why change a formula
1: at work, Sean?
0: Exactly. You know, I but, wish we had someone here who didn't know what they were doing. Well,
1: wish granted, because we have Keith Amon here to speak to us, and he knows what he's doing, what monsters are doing, I think everything. He knows what
2: everything is doing.
0: Is that true, Keith? Uh, I often
2: don't know what the rest of the role-playing gaming world is doing, but uh,
0: (laughs) I I do try to keep an eye on my little corner of the universe. All right. And now your little corner of the universe seems to be what monsters are doing. Uh, Since you are the author of three books, the first being The Monsters Know What They're Doing, the second Live to Tell the Tale, and the third one, which will be coming out shortly, I believe, is More. More. The monsters know what they're doing. Is that, is uh, that it? Correct? Is out? It is. It, it came out January fourth. Oh, excellent! So that is now out and available. Yes, and I have
1: it in my hands. Yeah, I so have the original.
0: It, but... I have the original signed copy of, of Keith's book from uh, Gamehole Con. That's right, Gamehole Con a few years ago. Nice. Uh, so, could you tell us uh, a little bit about what you uh, have done with these books and what you are doing?
2: Well, um, to give a little bit of background, I am uh, an old school D&D player who dropped out of school for a long time and didn't come back until about, uh, I guess now it's seven years ago, uh, 2015, um, which was pretty close to the time when uh, D&D 5th edition uh, was first released, Uh, and my wife was asking me if I would dungeon master a game for her and a group of her coworkers. I agreed. And so I got in with 5th edition pretty much on the ground floor. But after having been on a very long D&D hiatus in which I, I barely scratched the surface of 2nd edition, I never played 3rd, I never played 3.5, I never played 4th. So I was basically coming straight from late era AD&D slash earliest, earliest second edition to um, right into fifth edition. And uh, one of the first things that I noticed when I started getting back in the game was that I felt like some of the uh, combat encounters I was running were missing something that was necessary to make the encounter come to life. And what I started doing as an exercise for myself was giving the stat blocks a very, very close read so I could get a sense of what fighting these monsters was supposed to feel like. In 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 this particular case, it was goblins. We were doing Lost Mine, the Fandelver. and there's that uh, initial encounter followed by the cave encounter. And uh, once I started doing that, and i had already at the same about the same time decided that i wanted to get into writing as regular daily practice and uh thought that maybe i ought to start a blog of some kind i decided to make that the subject of my blog and uh and it took off from there and it, it, i i um wrote uh Three weeks' worth of articles before I started posting any of them, which is a, uh, <laughs> a, a, a something I recommend to anyone who is trying to get a blog off the ground. Have a lot of material in the can before you start posting any of it. Um, for a long That's time, so I was able to write to something it. every single day. And since I was posting one article a day, I was able to stay three weeks ahead for a very, very long time. Uh, then current events kind of you know knocked me off the beam and <laughs> and i 've been i 've been scrambling to catch up and falling farther and farther behind ever since but um but it was definitely a very good way to get a lot of material published fast and um, yeah and and after a while of doing that uh, as my traffic slowly crept up and on uh from time to time would take a little jump up and i found out that a lot of that was being driven by two or three subreddits on reddit um dm academy dnd next and matt colville
1: mm-hmm. uh
2: which is interesting um th- those three subreddits were responsible for just a huge amount of early growth uh And then eventually I was contacted by an editor at, uh, gallery books, uh, which is an imprint of Simon and Schuster, uh, who talked me into publishing the blog material along with, you know, additional new material as a book. And, uh, I resisted actually for quite a (laughs) while before I finally gave in. Um, and, uh, it was moved over from Gallery to uh, a sister imprint, Saga Press, which handles uh, their science fiction and fantasy content. And so, Saga's been the publisher of all three of my books so far, as well as my upcoming fourth book, which is going to be titled "How to Defend Your Lair." Wow. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm eager to to learn more about this publishing process. That's one of I've got like so many questions. Uh, I'm sure Sean does too. <laughs> I, but um. But, but we probably should get into the news, and then I want to come back and hit all these topics.
0: Hit all the monsters.
1: <laughs> That's what I've been trying to do.
0: Before Sean. they hit us back. <laughs> well, news actually starts out with monsters. Uh, Todd Kendrick interviewed Jeremy Crawford about the lore changes that are coming in Monsters of the Multiverse. And it really hit home after reviewing Keith's work, and seeing what Jeremy said about their new focus with these new monsters. Uh, Teos, do you want to sort of take us through what, what Jeremy was saying to Todd?
1: Yeah, it's super fascinating. In fact, as we were you know, getting ready to record, two other videos are out as well. But this first one, uh, and the link is in the show notes, it talks all about the mentality behind making their changes to monsters. And it starts with their new perspective, which is the multiverse. So, because there are all these worlds, including your homebrew setting that you might as a DM create, when they are writing monsters, they must now speak to all of these settings and all these permutations versus just representing the perspective of a single world or an amalgam of a few worlds, like your Forgotten Realms Greyhawk type history that the game had. Um, So, because of that, there are changes, and he provides... Kind of two examples uh one is that goblins recent editions have all talked about Maglubiet being the god of the goblins, but now we're associating goblins with the realm of fairy because that's where they came from before they spread out to the various worlds
0: yeah that's that's interesting in the sense that cool stories can come from that. Mm -hmm. But it also sort of flies in the face of looking at monsters as a sum of the parts in their stat blocks and making it work across many worlds. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I don't know, it just, I I get it. I get why they're doing it. I just wonder how it, it all works together when you're creating monsters that are meant to be used in a certain way, but now should be able to be used in many different ways. Yeah,
1: and the other example they provided were changelings, and they said, uh, Jeremy said, changelings are not only in Eberron anymore, and basically says, they were just always hiding in your other world. <laughs> to which I go, that is an amazing, consistent high roll at stealth and deception checks. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Retcon for the win, I guess. Thousands nice nice of pivot years. there,
2: though. Nice uh, yeah. rationalization after the fact.
0: Yeah,
1: thousands of years of rolling deception checks successfully. Every single member of the changeling
0: species, race, ancestry. Right. So they've been in Greyhawk forever, folks. Uh, forever. They just didn't yeah. know it.
1: Yeah. Now they're ready to reveal themselves.
0: Okay. Um.
1: Yeah. I. I don't know. I. I. I don't. I don't super. I kind of want to see more examples. I mean, I. I have the book. Uh, I did. I did because of the designer in me and the collectionist in me. I did pick it up. Um. But I have not read through all these changes to see how it goes on this front, you know, on this lore front, which takes a longer read through. Mm-hmm. Um, then it was also funny. Jeremy said that tortles appear in this in a printed book for the first time, which they were actually in the Critical Role Explorers' Guide to Wildmount, uh, hardback. So I thought that was a sort of funny slip. Okay. the Critical Role book is a book.
0: Yeah, it's a book from Wizards, no less.
1: Yeah. Okay. In fact. <laughs>
2: They were also in, um, I got to look this up. It um, was the Turtles Guide, which was a PDF. Yeah, no, and... they were in, they were in Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes.
1: Oh, really? As well? Wow. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah.
2: So well, as, as a, ever... as a, as a monster stat block, as a mon- maybe okay, he's yeah, saying I think this, this is the first time they're in means... print as a playable yeah. species.
1: Yeah. So as a playable, they were in the Explorer's Guide to Wildemount, um as well. Yeah. But uh, then there's another video that's on spellcasting in monsters because that's been a big part of the the buzz. And mm-hmm. Jeremy says there's been, he calls it an ongoing conversation between staff and fans to re- reevaluate monsters to make them easier to run. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've tried to, throughout the process, combine features, make things simpler for DMs. Remove options that should not be used, and this features heavily in spellcasting, where they wanted to extract, you know, spells that weren't useful. Um, and he says monsters now have spells and magical abilities that are not spells, but he says that he sees this as something that's always been in fifth edition. And he says, you know, mind flares, mind blast is magical and fantastic, but never intended to be a spell, even though it's magical in nature, and you can't counterspell it, and so on. Mm-hmm. Which I get, but I mean, to me, when you see an NPC monster stat block that's clearly casting Fireball, you've just named it slightly differently. I don't know that, that there's a, I don't understand why that is hmm. different, right? Or at least there's, there's not an explanation given for it. Yeah. And I can deal with that, but I think a lot of people can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or at least have been on Reddit and everywhere else <laughs> talking about
0: that. Well, as, as a big fan of not Counterspell, Uh, I'm fine with abilities that cannot be counterspelled uh, but I definitely understand the the rationale of people who are like things have been working in a way now they're changing what do why yeah yeah what do we do with that both in terms of rules and in terms of what the world means what the world is what these monsters are yeah. what about races? Uh, So, yeah, this
1: is the most recent video. Uh, A couple fun things. He says, Jeremy says that work began on races the year before last, so 2020 sometime, um, and that they've been dissatisfied for years that race has a disproportionate choice on your class. mm -hmm. So meaning that if you want to be a druid or a cleric, you would say, well, what gives me a wisdom bump? Mm -hmm. And you would choose that. Um, and they feel like the math of it is okay. Like there isn't a reason why players should react to that statistical bump because they don't see it as being that big an impact, but nonetheless, players are doing that. We don't like that effect. So let's separate the two. Mm -hmm. Um, then they secondarily, Jeremy says it's also story reasons, what he calls story reasons, as it appeared that all members of a race had particular differences, uh, you know, all more dexterous or, or all more intelligent mm-hmm. and they want to move away from that. Okay. Um, then they say that many races have new traits because design wise, they wanted to bring together different, uh, approaches. So one of the things that I saw, this was the Asimar, you know, where there were like several different types. Now it's one and you choose your particular feature and they're all very similar, mm-hmm. um, Traits like the elven trance, which, you know, it's just the plain old elf has now changed where that is tied, I guess, because they had said this sort of ties into dreams and ancestral dreams. Now, when an elf goes into a trance, they can swap exactly what proficiencies they're getting from being an elf. Okay. Which is an interesting choice and and causes a lot of us to go, wow, okay, it's, that's a real change, but, <laughs> but there it is. And that's the reason why. Okay. Um, a lot of traits they saw were cultural, which they want to get away from in this new multiverse view. So, hobgoblin, where it was all like, I am militaristic, but that's a cultural thing. It's not a, a what, what Jeremy said was um, physical, mythical, mystical are the things they want to look at for what constitutes your trait. So, they went back to hobgoblins as originally coming from the Feywild and the mystical gifts that come from those ancient days. And that was the actual core. Of what a hobgoblin should be is what Jeremy explains, mm-hmm. so I thought that was a very fascinating window into their design mentality and, and what they see is why they're you know doing these changes that we are looking at
0: yeah, I, I wonder what that means then, in terms of these these species as player options but also as monsters, because uh, does that carry over then because the stat block for the hobgoblin is all about martial abilities and Right. And I, so I wonder how that impacts, <laughs> impacts that side of the coin, if it does.
1: It, it is exceedingly tough, right? Because, and, and this is something, Keith, that, that we see in your book, right? You break down, you know, what is a hobgoblin doing, right? And what is it, what is it functioning? Because it's obviously written from this very military, organized, lawful perspective and formations and whatever. And, and now we're saying, well, a hobgoblin can be anything. It's like, well, then, what is the stat block? <laughs> That's a tough question. I mean, design wise, and then some friends of mine, and you know, we've been talking about this topic. Like, well, what? Yeah, what should your monster manual look like? It's it's fascinating.
0: <laughs> uh, and you've been pretty busy, Teos, because there's also another uh, video about storytelling in games from the Young Game Designers Masterclass. Uh, what what did that cover?
1: It's neat. Uh, This is part of BAFTA, the British Academy of Film and Television Arts, and they have a number of people on there from video games and other areas. But Jeremy Crawford is on there as well, and he shares some interesting knowledge on the multidisciplinary approach that Wizards of the Coast takes to storytelling. So he sort of says, yeah, we've got to come up with this narrative, but we have to do it while also looking at what players want and what they'll do with things, what the mechanics are, And the story has to allow for choice because it's not our story. It's the player and DM story. So we have to facilitate that. Um, Talks about story beats um, and that the social pillar that that a lot of times are being looked at in sort of narrative design, game design. In this case, some of the best story beats actually happen not just in what we would think of as the the role-playing pillar that would be that kind of heavy narrative, and actually can be the thrill of a battle, which has its own story impact uh, or the thing they discovered while exploring, so the importance of those different pillars. And then some great advice for writers, he talks about self-editing, self-cutting, because if you don't, the next person in the line of production will, (laughs) so you might as well deliver really the best you can and and edit out the the, the garbage, the, the noise. Yeah. The
0: extraneous. Yeah, let's I'm gonna have to definitely review that for my uh for my <laughs> class to uh to get some tips on that. Uh another bit of 5e news is that there is going to be a Dark Souls role-playing game. And not only is there gonna be a Dark Souls role-playing game, but it will be using the fifth edition rules. And this is interesting for me because there's been a lot of chatter on the interwebs about whether the success of, of Wizards of the Coast, the success of 5e is good or bad for the role-playing game genre as a whole. You know Some people are like, it's killing role play, other role-playing games that 5e is so popular. Others are taking the stance that it's bringing more people into the game and therefore more players mean more sales when they move on to other games. Well, 5, 5e is going to be the home of the Dark Souls RPG from Steam Forged Games. Uh, they are the publisher of board, card, and role-playing games, including Animal Adventures, Resident Evil, Horizon Zero Dawn, Monster Hunter World, Devil May Cry, and several other video game franchises that have been turned into board games, card games, and role-playing games.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I think we're at a time when I think there's a nice balance between different types of role-playing games and 5th edition um, having crowdfunding platforms, having all these different ways that people can sell things. I'm not particularly worried about a particular RPG choosing to use 5e. And and if anything, it gives them a broad excuse to do something different with 5e. Whether they do or or not, that's up to them. But 5e is an engine that you can do a lot to. So, yep. you know, that, that's in their hands. They get to choose whether they want to just be like any other 5e game or, or innovate.
0: Yep, very true. Uh, The last bit of news I want to get to before we get back to Keith is One Bookshelf is hiring a community relations representative. This will be a full-time position to communicate with creators and publishers to manage their questions and concerns. Um, And this is a job that we've seen other people do uh, a very good job at uh, because there are a lot of questions that come up about what we can and can't do on the various uh, parts of One Bookshelf. So, you know, if you have that skill set and you're interested in getting into the, uh, into the industry in that way, here's your chance. Um, that's at drivethroughrpg.com slash jobs. And the expected sa- starting salary is from 44 to 52K in U.S. dollars.
1: And it's a pretty good job posting worth looking at, um, whether you are interested in the position or you're someone who might be hiring other people. Mm -hmm. Similar to the Roll20 job postings, this is a nicely detailed job posting, which is something that often has been lacking in our industry. So good job, One Bookshelf,
0: doing that. And that's all the news that's fit to podcast this week. Uh, Let's get into our main topic, which is talking with Keith about his book franchise. Can I call the franchise? <laughs> We're gonna call the franchise. It's Give, it's definitely a listings.
2: series, I guess. Yeah. Uh there you go. I, I I look at the uh, the populated uh book listings on Amazon and whatnot, and now it is apparently the Monsters Know What They're Doing series, which <laughs> is um I you know, I get why publishers do this. I think it's a little bit funny because I definitely see more monsters as being the successor to the monsters know in a way that live to tell the tale really is not because it's more player facing. And I mean, it, it's, it is player facing as opposed mm-hmm. to more monsters and the monsters know, which are DM facing. Um, so it's, it's kind of funny to to me to see live to tell the tale as number two in the series and more monsters is <laughs> number three in the series. I tend right. to think of, the monsters know and more monsters it's being number 1 and number 2 and live to tell the tale being adjacent to that
1: and and just to to go back to what you said earlier right for anybody who doesn't know keith has been running this amazing blog that would mm-hmm. you know deliver to you something like hey let's break down you know uh, a beholder and how does it work or a bugbear or whatever and 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 say Let's take a look at at its stat block and and what what is written around the stat block and what how should we run this how would this thing behave and and that's maybe the, my favorite part of it is you get into the head of these creatures.
2: Well, I I see this as a form of role playing for the DM to engage in. Mm-hmm. Uh there are a lot of people these days who see this as almost a sort of an ideological contest between the role-playing side and the combat side. And uh, I think there are there are people on both sides of that divide, people who prefer combat and people who prefer narrative-heavy role-playing, who see them as opposites. And I do not see them as opposite ends of a spectrum. I see... Uh, I see... Knowing how to pilot a monster as in combat as a form of role playing for the DM to give the monster a way to express itself um, beyond just you know parlaying in a funny voice or something like that, but actually it, it's the monster's way of being in the world that the that the DM and the players are creating, and from the player's point of view, I see knowing what to do in combat as a way of role-playing your PC's expertise because Mm -hmm. they are out there in the world with a skill set. They know how to use that skill set. Maybe you don't think about how they're going to use all those skills in a crisis situation between game sessions, but your PCs do. (laughs) They're thinking about that all the time because it's for them, it's a matter of survival. And Mm -hmm. so they're going to give a great deal of thought to "Hmm, why did this spell or this maneuver not work in the last combat and how can I make sure it works in the future? How can I, you know, recognize when is the right moment to use it and use it appropriately in that moment. That's a way of expressing your character just as the way they approach a guard or a shopkeeper is.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's really good. I have a question. When you were getting into fifth edition, you were running the, the essentials or the, The basic set basically Mm -hmm. the the intro set um did you find that you needed to alter the way that monsters worked based on the strength of the party uh so in the sense that well this one encounter as written if i ran the monsters to the best of their abilities they're going to wipe the characters off the map I
2: did go through the Lost Mine of Phandelver and manually calculate the difficulty of every single one of those encounters so that I would at least know when a difficult encounter was coming up. And in a couple of cases, I took away a couple of monsters or I added in a couple of monsters because I thought pacing wise that encounter ought to be a little bit easier or a little bit harder. I I definitely tweaked it from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Once I realized that uh, especially with less experienced players, the the potential for a TPK was definitely there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I wanted to make sure that I, at least as the DM was not caught off guard by that. Mm
1: You know, it's interesting reading your uh, books has, made me because you know you focus a lot on the dungeon masters but but as someone who designs monsters reading your books makes me want to design my monsters better with more of your mentality in mind of of treating it as an actual creature that has to have survival strategies which I think is really great
2: well i think i was very um i don't know if i was directly inspired by I, I was absolutely indirectly inspired by those ecology articles that used to run in dragon magazine the ecology of the beholder the ecology of the carrion crawler and so forth uh in which they 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 treated it as a um you know they they said these are monsters that live in a world to which they have adapted they have uh found a way to be in this world yeah it's it's funny who was i I was talking or I was listening to somebody just recently. Um, It might've, it might've been, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say who it was if I'm wrong. (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to misremember, but I I definitely saw on Twitter recently, somebody saying to the effect of um, evolution doesn't come into play in D and D all of the different uh, player folk are, created by gods you know they put them on and and okay you know what i am i am okay with the idea that a god or a wizard or whatever can reach into this setting and make something happen directly and and influence the world in a particular way place a creature on the planet that wasn't there before that's all well and good but the minute they stop doing whatever they're doing, the minute they take their hand away, natural processes take over again. <laughs> they kick in. If you have created, if you're a wizard who said, "Hmm, today I will create the owl bear." And you put the owl bear into the world, OK, you have created an owl bear. Now what? If this owl bear can survive in the world, it is going to. If it can't, it's going to be killed and there's no more owlbears. So <laughs> natural selection is still going to apply. And I, I'm actually very, very explicit about that in, in uh, my writings about a couple of monsters. The one that immediately comes to mind is the Minotaur. Because on the one hand, you have the Minotaur as a playable folk. And I prefer in in... You know, in the books, I use the game terminology as written. In my own personal discussions, I am leaning toward folk rather than race because I think that choosing to use the word race was one of the biggest mistakes that the original creators of this game made. And honestly, I think so many issues could have been avoided if they simply had not made that choice but yeah. never mind that yeah. um yeah. with minotaur's on the one hand you have them as a playable folk but on the other hand you have some lore that says they are created in uh in in rites conducted by cultists of Baphomet mm-hmm. so the approach that i took to that Um, is to say there are both they both exist in the world and you need to have a little backstory for your minotaurs to decide whether this is a minotaur who was born a minotaur or someone who was turned into a uh, minotaur through this ritual because the minotaur that's born a minotaur is going to be pretty comfortable with who and what they are. And they're going to have their way of doing things, but they're like, you know, I'm, I'm fine with what I am. But the minotaur who is turned into a minotaur has this lower intelligence and, you know, might really just be deeply hurt and frustrated by that that might really be a source of trauma for them and they might deeply resent having been turned into this this thing that is not as smart and um you know maybe because of that um is um less inclined to preserve themselves when they are taking a lot of damage. Maybe they fight to the death because they're like, I have nothing to lose. You know, I don't, I don't particularly value this existence that has become mine. I'm just gonna, you know, yeah, whereas cool. the minotaur that's born a minotaur is like, I got no problem with being a minotaur. This is what I am. If you, if you, you know, if I think you're going to kill me, I'm going to exit this situation um so uh i think i think acknowledging both the fact of natural selection and evolution as processes that take place even in a world with magic side by side with the possibility of magic or divine intervention to shake things up gives you more story more options and um it's just it's just something worth thinking about that's awesome
1: well, and and it's been super well received. Your approach, right? Both both your blog, like I, I, that's how I first learned about you. Is people would just say, "Oh, well, when I read this blog by Keith, that's when I learned and realized how to run this monster." Or if I look at Amazon and I look at your reviews, I mean they're just fantastic. And and the kind of things that are written by people who have read your books are exactly what you'd want. Where people are saying, "This has changed how I how I run games. It's made my campaigns better." Um, more, your new book is number three in new releases for d and d on Amazon after the rules expansion gift set and <laughs> Call of the nether Deep right the critical role book I mean, <laughs> that 's really good right like and uh, and you 've got the back cover you 've got Joe manganello r a Salvatori, G- dr o and others uh, writing on it so You've done well with this. It's been really well received. Uh, my how, my how... editor
2: uh, did a really good job getting me blurbs. <laughs> 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 Aimed way higher than I would have. That's fantastic. How... To what do you attribute that
1: huge success?
2: Well, one of the things I discovered from um, the feedback on Reddit is simply that there were a lot of people who were hungering for this kind of guidance. I speculated when I first started writing the blog that maybe if these uh if answering these sorts of questions were something that was going to be helpful to me that it might be helpful to other people as well um and it turned out that a lot of people really felt like they they needed this um you know in addition to the verisimilitude question and and the uh attempt to make the world feel more real and more lived in and the monsters truer to themselves and, and role-playing them. One of the things that's um, a big motivator for me is helping people manage their cognitive load at the table, because when you're a dungeon master, you got a lot of moving parts to keep track of at all times. And so that's going to take a toll on your decision-making in the moment. Yeah. If you have a playbook or, uh, or, a, or a flow chart or just some decisions that you've made in advance of the game session, um, easy decisions to make because you have some general idea of what's going to go down. The more of those decisions that you can make before you come to the table the fewer of them you're having to make in the moment. And so you can make those decisions more considered. Um, and, uh, things are just generally going to go better. And then you, during the session can focus on the emergent things, the, um, the, the round by round management initiative and hit points and all of that kind of stuff, placement of, of, uh, all of the different, uh, parties involved. And, um, and that's just going to make things more, uh, as as my military friends like to say, high speed, low drag. I've, <laughs> I've shamelessly stolen that phrase because I think it's such a it's such a beautiful description of what you want a combat encounter to be, because they can be quagmires sure. if you're not careful, um, especially if you have a large party. I routinely play with parties of six or seven. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of people. I personally will not. Uh, run a game for more than seven players that's my hard upper limit but but i do pretty often play with six or seven and so you really need to be able to keep that moving and uh so having having your own course charted so that you can be more present in the moment and more responsive to what the players are doing is a big help and so you, that's providing that is is one of the uh, things that I think makes my work very
0: valuable. So aside from examining monsters and getting across to DMs, you know, the ins and outs of, of running them, you've also done a little bit of monster creation. Uh, how, a little bit. A uh, little bit. Well, I saw the 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 gulfiest tree that uh, mm-hmm. was there. And so how- And in more monsters,
2: there's the Binazg.
0: Excellent. Uh, how how do you look at game design then, coming from first this deep dive into a stat block, taking that into account, becoming a, a designer of monsters? What would be like some tips that you could give people? You know, I I, I
2: don't think of myself as a designer of monsters. I... I'm a DM who occasionally designs monsters, but it's not something that I do super frequently or um as a uh as a core aspect of my work. Um I, I don't I you know I, I think of myself more almost as a um a a critic or a hmm. uh an exegete almost. <laughs> Uh, more, much more that than a, a designer. Um, well, I, but, I tell you, um, but when I, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I'm with Sean in that I would, I would buy that book, uh, on, on how to design monsters because, you know, for more, you, you have this, uh, example of how to break down a stat block. And I, and mm-hmm. I love in both your books, you sort of have these, these beginning sessions that kind of warm you up for what you're about to see and show you, what monster stat blocks are about. And then more, you, 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 create your own monster and mm-hmm. then you break down, you know, what is it trying to do? How does it operate? And it's this very cool sort of lurker, um, you know, creature that's going to come after you and strike and be able to get away and strike at you again. And that idea of, of thinking through that sort of design I, I think it's fantastic and, 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 uh, I'd love to see more.
2: <laughs> well, I, 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 did with the bin Ozk uh, very, very consciously think about what kind of style did I want it to have? What kind of creature is this and how does it live? How does it hunt? Um, and what would make it particularly scary to, uh, those who encountered it. Um, And so the idea of it living underground and and having keen senses but no eyes and um, having it be able to propel itself very fast through narrow spaces um, and having it be able to move as fast uh, squeezing through this space as the dwarf who's running away from it. You know, um, I totally
1: had alien three flashbacks, <laughs> of monster um, very happily,
2: <laughs> you know, so, um, I guess, I guess since, since so much of my work is about trying to reverse engineer, um, all of the existing published monsters, um, now I'm just turning around and doing engineering in the forward direction. So yeah. it's, it's just your basic, um design approach i guess you would say of well what do i want it to do and how am i going to make it do that Mm -hmm. what is relevant to that and you know like like you were um uh, sean sort of implying before uh about editing you want to you want to cut away everything that's not essential Mm -hmm. um and so when i'm creating the bin oz i don't want it to have traits that are not specifically relevant mm-hmm. to this style. I want it. I want everything about this creature to say fast moving tunnel dweller that, you know, and an ambush predator. Um, so there's nothing in there that is not about that. Yeah, that's smart.
1: What do you think when you, you know, because more deals of the monsters and Volos and Morden Canons and your previous book with, with the monster manual um, do you feel like the monster's design is changing? Do they all seem pretty comparable between those three books?
2: I mean, well, I think the the salient distinction to make is less between the monster manual on one hand and Volo's and Mordenkainen's on the other and between... The Monster Manual, Volos, and Mordenkainen's on the one hand, and Monsters of the Multiverse yeah. on the other, because that's where you really, really see the um, design pivot. And i I went out and got Monsters of the Multiverse. Uh, kind of have to; it's core to my job now. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. um, um, I haven't had a chance to do a deep dive into it yet. I mainly was just quickly. Uh, reviewing it to see to what extent it was going to change anything that I've written for how to defend your Lair," so I can get that manuscript finally in the can. Mm -hmm. But um, after this, uh, I'm definitely going to take a a closer look because certainly a lot of the things that I have written in more monsters are going to change somewhat for people who are, getting their uh stat blocks out of monsters of the multiverse instead of volos Mm -hmm. or mordenkainen's um there are small changes here and there like for example the transmuter who no longer has blink or expeditious retreat that was one thing i noticed um um, but you know any any monster that had a, a stat block the length of your arm um I haven't taken a close look at the Nagpa yet, for example, but I imagine that's probably one that changed big. I imagine that the Archfiends probably changed big. And um, I think that that um, the overall um, ideas of how these monsters are going to fight are probably not going to change that much, but the fine-grained individual decisions may end up changing a lot. And so it'll be, it'll be interesting to, uh, to see what's going on there. Certainly, I'm sure there are a lot of people out in the world who already have Volos and Mordenkainen's and have no intention of, um, of uh, buying a book that essentially duplicates their contents in a revised form, at least not for some time. Um, and so they will—they will definitely get value out of more monsters for as long as they stick with that uh, original purchase decision. Um, in terms of how the monsters have changed, um, I mean, personally, one of my, one of my biggest cavetches, which you'll see if you read my work for any length of time, um, is is just how difficult it can be to uh, choose among the list of spells that's as long as your arm and and figure out exactly what um uh what you should do with those spells in any given round the just the uh the um you know the the sheer supermarket fatigue of it almost yeah. um yeah. so the question is and and this is this is probably the question I'm gonna be trying to answer every time I look at one of these revised monsters is um does the revamped list make this monster more like what it was meant to be or does it change it into something else mm-hmm. um you know I I uh I have led a very um renaissance life and and had my uh had my fingers in a whole lot of different pies. Um, in college, uh, I studied journalism and photography, and um, some of the um, some of what I learned in my photography program was just so valuable for me in terms of how I how I think about things, how I see things. Um, my uh, my mentor in the photography program was. Um, very big on getting us to, uh, think critically and think as critics. And a lot of what he presented to us in a context of art criticism is extendable to cultural criticism, political commentary. Um, really, I mean, so many different things you can, you can extend, uh, some of those observations to, um, He introduced me to the, uh, quotation, uh, by William James, uh, who said that when you are, um, critiquing a piece of art, you want to ask three questions. What is the artist trying to do? Do they do it? And is it worth doing? Mm -hmm. And all three of those questions are important and i i kind of take the uh i take that approach to the monsters i mean i i don't do it in so many words um but certainly my approach is informed by that i want to know what is the monster trying to do <laughs> do they do it um i'm less concerned with is it worth doing because this is a published monster people are going to be using it so okay let's just let's just take its existence in the world and um, take that as a given and then, and then go from there. Um, but in terms of the revised stat blocks, now I'm going to be asking, you know, um, uh, was this worth doing? And in the sense of um, easing the DM's load, I mean, I, that is yeah, absolutely sure. worth doing um, a priori. But, um, but when you, you get down to the level of the specific changes, then it's was was this something r- that really needed to be needed really needed to be done like did the transmuter really need to lose blink i mean that's a transmutation spell um why, why that choice you know i and, and and i would need to look more closely at yeah. the overall stat block to see how that fits in with everything else but i'm and, i'm curious then, about that decision yeah.
1: those npcs had um each had a special ability reflecting their school, mm-hmm. which functioned like the school does in the player's handbook. Mm-hmm. Um, and now those features are made so that it sort of doesn't matter what spell type you're casting. You know, it, it's just, it's just a, a, like a power oh, yeah, or a benefit they yeah. have, right? Which I thought was very interesting. So it's way easier to run. Do you lose some flavor? Sure. Right. Yeah.
2: What I think make, if you can um... if you can simplify the task for the DM mm-hmm. and keep the flavor mm-hmm. yeah. then you have done something very important and you've succeeded at it. Right. Um, if you start to lose the flavor
0: then mm-hmm. it becomes right. And and as a your... not the designer that's always the balance we're striking. We're balancing you know playability and and under each topic there's several things, right? Playability in terms of easy to run in terms of uh, effective to run without dragging a combat on forever. And then you've got the monsters being the toys that the DM gets to play, (laughs) the characters, which, so they should be fun. And then where, how do they fit in the world? How do they fit within the story of the world, right? All of these things are on a, a spectrum that you're always trying to balance. It's like one of those boards that you stand on, and you're always shifting your weight in one direction or another. And rarely do you get it just right where you can just stand there all day and say, hey, look at me. Uh, there's, it's always tipping one way or the other. Uh, that's something that I, you know, as I talk with game designers and, and review monsters, um, not that I just got through reviewing 400 monsters or anything, but, you know, those those questions are always, always at the forefront.
1: Well, and and specifically, what do you think, Keith, about this idea of taking that big spell list, but still having a spell list? You reduce it, but you still have the spell list. So you've still got to look that up. And now you have some specified non-spell magical actions that can't be dispelled or counterspelled. Is that a design concept that you liked? How do you feel about it?
2: I will say that... um not having to keep track of spell slots is a big boon. Mm -hmm. Um, Although you do do still have to keep track of how many times a day they have used the per day powers. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is a a partial reduction uh, in workload, but not a full reduction. Um, I think I disagree with Sean a little bit I think Counterspell is great. I, I like the idea of, of being able to, you know, use your own ability to manipulate the Arcane Weave and, and foul up whatever somebody else is trying to do potentially. Um, and I think there is something lost in taking what was an offensive spell and turning it into a non-spell magical attack um, because quite often those are going to be the things people want most to counterspell. You know. Damn. Holy heck, there's eight d eight of damage coming at me. Yes, <laughs> I would like to make that not happen, please. I would like to uh un <laughs> uncast this spell. Um, you know, it, it it would be it would be a definite loss if you could only counter spell the incoming slow or the incoming fear and not the incoming fireball fireball (laughs) um Uh so and 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 that you know the design of 5e has been so careful in terms of Making everything meant to be read absolutely literally, which I think was a very very smart move they did with this decision, Le- just leaving no ambiguity at all. Um, that was that was something very very important in my opinion that Five E did. Uh, because if you've ever dealt with rules lawyers, boy, howdy. (laughs) Um, but, um, but, but it seems strange to me that Wizards of the Coast would start from this point this very, very kind of almost legalistic, um, make sure everything is worded exactly the way you want it to be, make sure everything interacts exactly the way you want it to interact, you know, and it was, it was that that made me realize it was thinking about that literalism that made me realize just how powerful conditions are in five E and almost what a strange decision it is to relegate them to an appendix in the player's handbook. They deserve a much more prominent placement than that because mm-hmm. they are a big, big, big deal. Um, But um to, to take an offensive spell and then turn it into something that is not a spell. Um, I really wonder why they would do that. I find it hard to believe that this choice was unintentional. I find it hard to believe that it was an oversight just based on how they have handled things before. Um, but then again, there are other recent oddities like the, the weirdly overpowered cleric domains in Tasha's, which a lot of people feel like they just can't allow because they are completely out of the league of every other subclass option for clerics. Um, I don't know. I, you know, yeah. I am, I am privy to none of what is going on with that. So um, it, I, well, one, I wonder you, a little bit.
1: I've got another question I want to ask you yeah. very quickly around and I'm thinking particularly of the Deathlock mastermind, which was shared around a lot on Twitter. And as people break it down, they go, okay, well, this stat block seems to have a, a playbook that's really about immobilizing, restraining, and being in darkness. To what extent do you think monsters, let's say some monsters even, should be complicated in this way where you have to think through okay my spell list includes darkness my devil's sight lets me see through it now my grave bolt can function at 120 foot range like to what extent is that good to have that in the monster versus just it's straightforward right That's always easy what you see is what you do kind of thing
2: Oh, I think it's great to have those crazy interactions. I I love it. (laughs) That being said, um, the interactions should be evident to the person running them. Um, They shouldn't be buried. They shouldn't be hidden. They should be gloriously out in the open. Um, You know, here is a crazy thing this monster can do. Here's something you might want to try with it. Like, you know, because the possibilities are exciting. They are part of the fun for the DM to be able to break out. Like, here's how these things usually work. Now here's how it works with this monster. That is the fun and the individuality of that monster. You know, this monster can do some, some, and, and, you know, that, that brings to mind another monster, uh, the Balhanath. The Balhanath has such a strange combination of traits and figuring out how to make them work together was really, really hard, um, and there's still some oddities. I, this was one I actually looked to see whether it was resolved in Monsters of the Multiverse, and was surprised to find that by and large, it had not. Um, it's got these these uh, regional effects around its lair that operate at different distances. Um, they did make one change. I think they 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 um, made two of the two of the distances line up uh, when they didn't before. But um, you've got you've got legendary actions that seemingly have to be used outside of combat when there is no initiative count twenty for it to happen on. You really have to bend some rules to make the the Balhanath work. Well, it does but,
1: warp reality, Keith. So. Yeah, I mean, if you, <laughs>
2: if if you have an opportunity in your game and you wanna, do, you wanna make the bet, the Balhannis does one thing, and if you wanna make it do that thing in your game, um, you have to bend some rules to do it. But um, it's good at that one thing, you know. <laughs> once once you get all of the all of the parts working together, I'm gonna have to go review that entry. Yeah.
1: Um, I want to turn a bit just, if it's all right, to to talk about publishing. And you mentioned earlier that you were sort of convinced to self-publish. How has that, it, it seems like that's worked for you really well versus options going on the DMs Guild or other sort of tried and true approaches. And do you have anything you would share about that? process of self-publishing like how did you learn to do this well it's not
2: self-publishing first of all it's it's being published by a trade publisher it's very much not self-publishing it's just third party publishing um it has been really terrific to have an editor who is interested in this stuff and on top of it and who uh, knows enough about the game to sometimes catch me in my mistakes or, um, or query something that I maybe didn't explain in quite enough detail. Um, I think the, uh, the, um, production values of the book have just been magnificent. The covers, especially I was, Mm -hmm. I was very lucky to, uh, find a cover artist who, um, who who produced some some really terrific images in a really distinctive style that um, that made my books very visually distinctive from a lot of the other stuff you see on the market. Made it really stand out. Yeah. Nobody's going to mistake my books for a Watsi publication. Um, and uh, and I think that's great because I think it uh, it captures some of the. Uh, Some of the, you know, it's, it's definitely a mix of reverence and irreverence that I bring to, (laughs) uh, to the game. Cause I've been playing it for a long time. There's a lot about it. I love, and there's a lot about it. I really respect. And there's also some things that are completely full of it. And I'm not afraid (laughs) to say that. (laughs) And I think also, if it were not for, for, uh, if it were not for my particular voice, reading this stuff could get very boring, very fast. Um, So, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been very, very nice. Um, I've, I've, I'm glad I took, I'm glad I accepted the opportunity when it was offered to me. Now I did do a little bit of self-publishing and I have also done a little bit of DM skilled publishing. Um, but the traction was nowhere near. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, every time, even though I have these books, every time I'm checking out of something, uh, it's, would you like Keith's book? <laughs> it's, and that's great, right? It's really fantastic. And, and, and the, I mean, I'm sure it's based on the fact that the reviews are just glowing. So everybody wants to serve up your book, which is great. I mean, you've done
0: amazing work here. Well, I'm I'm glad people like it and it's helping them out. Yeah. <laughs> and And the thing about publishing is right it's not often you get an opportunity like this. And when you get no. that opportunity to take the best advantage of it that you possibly can, uh, yeah. And the, you know, the writing in this book is just, it's crisp. It's entertaining. It's insightful. It, it does all the things that you want it to do to, to speak to all uh, levels of experience with the game. So, you know, kudos to you for, for hitting that home run when that, when that pitch <laughs> was served up to you. Well, thank you for that. And and honestly, I mean,
2: I, I'm i proud of my work. You know, I, I have a background as a language professional. I've been a professional writer. I've been a professional editor. Um, so a lot of this stuff um, I was very well prepared for when the opportunity came along. Um, I was also very, very lucky. And there are a lot of people out there who are just as creative and just as clever as I am, um, and, and who have not had this kind of opportunity fall in their lap. And, you know, it, 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 everyone deserves it. Um, it happens to me, but really, I, I don't think that I am, um, uniquely, uh, well-qualified for this opportunity. There are loads of people out there who, who are just as deserving as I was. And I just happened to be the one who got lucky. So for all of the other people out there who, who would really deserve and benefit from a break like this, I wish them all the luck in the world too.
0: Well, I nearly tripped over a stand full of these books at Barnes and Noble the other day. Uh, so, (laughs) so, uh, they're, they're out there to be bought in the world anywhere that you buy books. Uh, and I want to, first of all, thank you, Keith, for coming on and talking with us and sharing for your me. wisdom and insight. I want to thank our listeners and our patrons who keep the show going. Um, if you would like to become a patron of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash MMP. So Keith, if people want to follow your work, follow your thoughts on social media or elsewhere, where can they do that?
2: I am on Twitter at, at Keithamon. I uh, have a personal website, spyandowl.com, which uh features my books as well as um my photography too, because I, you know, still enjoy doing that when I can. Um I um, my books are on sale, like Sean said, wherever you like to buy books, independent booksellers, bookshop.org. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, if you live in Canada, Indigo. Um, And uh, if you would like to buy them from your friendly local game store, they can order them wholesale through Simon & Schuster Distribution if their game distributor of choice does not carry it. That's
0: excellent. Excellent. I'm looking forward to the book of monster photography. Uh, (laughs) We need you to get on that they
2: don't hold still very well that's very
0: true uh teos where i
2: like
1: that
0: where can people find you like
1: i just want to pause the idea that what keith has is the ability to actually travel to the worlds where these monsters live exactly (laughs) pictures of them video study them so this is all real field manuals got it
0: i understand it's like it's like a bigfoot sighting yeah right
1: yeah (laughs) Uh, thank you, Sean. You can find me uh, at AlphaStream on Twitter, my website, alphastream.org. From there, you can get
0: all the uh, all the details from there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can follow the podcast Twitter at D and d Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So, Keith, Master of Monsters, what are we going to do now? Let's
2: go be some monsters.
0: <laughs> Rawr, step, step, step.